Amen. Good morning, Two Cities Church. How are we this morning? Good to see you guys. It has been a busy season for our church. I've told you this before, but when a church is healthy, it should grow organizationally and spiritually and numerically. And by God's grace, that's happened to us. When we look back a year ago today to where we are today, so we look back a year, we realize that our adult attendance has doubled since a year ago. Unbelievable. And not only that, our kids' attendance has doubled. We now have over 300 kids in that building next door every weekend, okay? And this is your fault, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. You guys called dibs on that. And now we got the Song of Solomon series. And so we just just think it's even more is coming, okay? So I tell you that because I know you're in here and it's crowded and hello, we see you in the lobby and and we bought the smallest chair we could buy. It's 18 and a half inches and you're sitting in it and it's crowded and, okay? And and it feels, when you come here, it feels like Chick-fil-A on Saturday at noon. Okay, that's what it feels like. And you want your Chick-fil-A sandwich and you like it, but it's a little crowded. Let me tell you this. Um, we always talk about our seating capacity, okay? But, but let me say this. All that you see is because of all that you don't see. Here's what you don't see. Most of you don't get to see this. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who serve regularly in the life of our church. And I just want to take a moment and talk, talk to our church family. If you're new, this is not for you. But if you're a church family, you've been to the weekend or you call Sioux City's church home, I just want to have a brief conversation with us about serving because serving for the Christian is an identity, right? Like, let me, let me quote a verse that if you're a Christian, you know. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, right? And to give his life as a ransom for many. We're like, okay, well, we'll sing a thousand hallelujahs about that. And we'll let that, every song that we've ever sung is about how Jesus served us. Well, guess what? Serve people, serve people. That's what happens when you're truly been transformed and you realize, wait a second, God served me at great cost to himself. It creates in you a heart that wants to serve. So serving is, it's what Christians do. It's the overflow of being served by Christ. But then I want to tell you this, because this is kind of cool. Serving is not only an identity, it's an opportunity. So when you serve, this is really cool. When you serve and only when you serve, you get a front row seat at where God's working in our church or in the city or wherever. And here's how we know this. So there's this famous Jesus' first miracle, right? It's at the wedding of Canaan, and water, we all know this miracle, water is turned into wine. And if you read it, it's in John 2. If you read it really carefully, here's what you'll see. There's only one group of people who knew the miracle happened. It wasn't anybody at the wedding. The only people who saw the miracle were the servants. So what happens here is when you serve, you get to see things that, that no one else gets to see. A couple months ago, we had a young lady come up and she serves in our kids' ministry and she said, I got to pray with a young kid to receive Christ. It's like, yeah, you get to see how God's working in our kids' ministry in ways that the rest of us don't get to see. And by the way, when we talk about our kids' ministry, just so you know, that is the greatest opportunity and greatest need in our church. Do you know the largest concentration of non-Christians that come here on a Sunday are in that building? And if I told you guys, there's a bunch of non-Christians and they want to hang out with you and they want you to teach them the Bible, you'd go, yeah. And I'm like, they live next door. You're like, no, I don't, no, no, no. <laughs> we'll give you a t-shirt. And it's still no, you know? Um, but let me just tell you this, because this is, this is awesome. Because so, there's different things. You, you might go, what would you do in the kids' ministry? Well, you, some of you may just love to take the babies and give mom a break and pray over them and just take care of them. Others of you may get to teach the gospel to, to preschoolers. And then I want to particularly say to the men, but to all of us, guess what? it's an awesome opportunity to invest in older elementary school kids. And and if you want to know, and if you're a part of our church, you should care about this. When do we lose kids in church? We know the answer to that. It's that transition fourth, fifth grade to sixth, seventh grade. They're going through puberty. They're asking lots of questions. And one of the things they're wondering is, does anybody else believe this except for mom and dad? And when you can show up and you're like, I'm another friendly face. And yes, I believe this. And I'm here to, you know, to basically partner with your parents to teach you about Jesus. It's an unbelievable opportunity. So let me just say this too, one last thing about, so, some parents and millennial parents were so, and, and you know, the iGen parents were so worried about our kids. Your kids will be fine if they're in, in, uh, in their kids ministry for two services in a row. That's one of the reasons we have multiple kids ministry. It's so that you could actually fully attend and fully serve one. And listen, your kids are going to love it. They get double gospel and double goldfish, yeah. right? <laughs> They, they get to meet a bunch of new godly people. They, they get twice as many godly influences and twice as many godly friends. And so if, if a lot happened during COVID, if you got off on the sidelines, we want to call you and invite you back as an identity and an opportunity to serve in our church, particularly to pray about and consider serving our kids. If you showed up, you're new, uh, and you say, ah, well, I actually would love to serve. That's one of the things that you can do by going to our weekender, which we'll hear about more at the end of the service. Let me take a moment. I'm going to pray for us, all those who are serving, because it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and then we're going to dive into James. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you genuinely that you have served us in Christ at great cost to yourself. What an amazing God we have. We have a God who serves us. We have a God who became a servant, even a servant unto death, even death on a cross. Lord, I pray that that would influence and inform our lives, that we would serve our families, we would serve our friends, we would serve our neighbors, we would serve our church, we would serve our city. Lord, let us, let us see the opportunity. What an opportunity, particularly next door, hundreds and hundreds of kids who are at the most formative years of their lives. I've, one study said that you know, mo- something like 90% of people who come to faith in Christ do so before they end high school. So we, we want to be there, and we want to bring the help and the hope of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, type two, turn to James chapter one. If you're new, this is what we do. Walking through books of the Bible. We got one more week in James. Next week will be our last week in James chapter one. So today we're gonna be, if you, if you follow along, some of you take notes. We're gonna be in verses 19 through 25. James is Jesus's little half brother. And guess what? He was a blue collar guy. That's what he was. He's a blue collar guy. I think truck driver, uh, think tradesman, grew up in a poor family, had lots of siblings. Jesus is his older brother. And you know what it is about blue collar men and women that we love? It's like, they wanna know how does this work? I'm not all just about ideas. I'm not about the theoretical. I'm about the practical. So James is highly practical. It's called the wisdom of the New Testament. Week one, James is like, hey, listen, here's, here's a lesson from week one if you weren't here. Life's tough. You know it. Life's tough for lots of reasons. We call them trials. Sometimes there's big trials. We call that the Ukraine-Russia war, right? You talk to someone in Ukraine, they're going through a big trial. But then there's little trials, your marriage and you know, your boss and you know, your health issue and all that, okay? Or maybe it's a big health issue, so then it's a big trial. So we talked about trials. Then we talked about temptations, Trials come from without, temptations come from within. Caleb did a great job. The whole thing about temptations is we need to be honest about them. It's not if you're tempted, I mean, come on. It's where are you tempted, when are you tempted? Are you being honest about temptation? Are you repenting, are you growing? So that that was the first couple weeks. And then today we're moving from not the temptations or the trials, but to the tendency of a Christian. What are the habits and the inclinations of a Christian? Let me tell you what it is. It's to not grow. It's to be stuck, it's to be stalled, it's to be plateaued. Let's be honest, and I know church is no place to be honest, okay? But let's be honest for a second. Some of you are in the exact same place that you've been in for a decade. And when you look back on your life, you go, oh man, I grew a lot in high school, that camp, that conference, that retreat, you know, whatever. I grew a lot in college. I was in a college ministry. I grew a lot when I was single. I grew a lot when I was on that mission trip for that summer. Here's the problem with all those things. They're in the past. And what happens with with Christians is we get stuck. And so what James is gonna tell us is this is really cool. This is super practical. Like if the whole book of James is practical, today is super duper practical because he's gonna just tell us how to grow as a Christian. And and, and kind of a sub theme of of James is maturity means moving forward, okay? It it means making progress. It doesn't mean being perfect. It just, it, it doesn't mean perfection. It means the direction of your life. And then you also know this, the hardest person to lead is you. You know, the hardest person isn't your spouse. The hardest person isn't your kids. The hardest person isn't your employees. The hardest person to lead is you. And so James is gonna really be helpful today and he's gonna tell us how the Bible is to change and transform our lives. So here's the big idea for the sermon and, uh, and for the, from the text. It's that the Bible was given to you not to increase your knowledge, but to transform your life. But that's not how we act. We act like the Bible was only given to us for information and not for transformation. See, here's what happens. Um, When you become a Christian, you get a new relationship with God, and that new relationship with God is seen in one primary way, your relationship with his word. So if you wanna know how your relationship with God is going, because you can fool yourself about that. Oh, I love God, oh, I follow God, oh, I have a relationship with God, oh, I respect God, oh, I listen to God. No, you don't. Well, you don't if you don't do any of that with the word. If you ignore the word, you ignore God. If you don't like the word, you don't like God. This is why most Christian testimonies, so I'll tell you, so I grew up, I'm a recovering Catholic, Okay, if you're here and you're Catholic today, you can call me Father Kyle. Okay, we'll take communion at the end of service. Uh, but, but I'm a recovering Catholic, which, you know, I had a Bible in my room, uh, and I remember being super intimidated by this big red Catholic Bible. And one night I opened it up, I was probably middle school or early high school, and I read a little bit of Revelation, and I quickly put it back on the shelf, okay? And it was a Bible that was far and that was distant from me, because guess what? God was far and distant from me. That's how I viewed him. I become a Christian, immediately I had an all-consuming desire for the Bible, and I was a public high school student. I mean, I never read. <laughs> I, I mean, they did teach me to read, but I just never read. And then I, I got a Bible and, and all of a sudden I just, I'm like, what is this? First Thessalonians, what is this? Gospel of Mark, what is this Luke? I, and I just, I just read the whole Bible in like, or the whole New Testament in like a month or two. Why? Because when you have a new relationship with God, you get a new relationship with the word. So if you wanna know how's your relationship with God going, one of the main questions to go is how have you been relating and responding to his word? 
Okay, so, so what James is going to do, we'll read it here in verse 19. He's going to talk to us about the word of God. Here's what he says. This is James 1, 19 through 21. Um, he says this. Know this. So there's things that we need to know. Okay, there is information. Know this. My beloved brothers, we could say by extension, brothers and sisters. He's talking to Christians, okay? I know not everyone here is a Christian, but this word is for Christians. He says, know this, my beloved brother. Let every person, I don't care how old you are. I don't care your life stage. I don't care your lifestyle. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care your excuses. It doesn't matter. Let every person... And then look at this, very, very straightforward. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So three quick commands, okay? Three, three word commands. Let's say them again. Uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Um, four, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then look at this, therefore, so it's connected. That's why it's therefore. Um, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, what's interesting is when we read these, this verse, you know, be you know, quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, it's easy to think, man, isn't that unbelievable advice in your marriage? Wouldn't that be great to do with your friends? Or man, try that at work and see how it works. And you can do those things, but that's not what this is. This isn't like just good advice. Like, you know, I, on Instagram, every once in a while, I get all these, you know, I don't I guess it's the people I'm following. I'll see these inspirational quotes and this, this advice. And I saw this thing recently. It said, don't reply when you're angry. Don't decide when you're sad. Don't promise when you're happy. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's a good, I mean, you know, that's good, good advice. That's not what this is. This, is, this actually has, you can apply it to your relationships with, with humans, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever, but this is actually about how you respond to God's word. You all, the, the most important thing about a passage of scripture is the same as the most important thing about real estate. Location, location, location. So if you look at verse 18, you don't have to go there now, I'm not gonna read it to you, but in verse 18, it talks about how the word of God made us alive, that when the spirit of God and the word of God comes into the heart of a believer, that person becomes a Christian. They become born again, born anew, born from above. Well, then if you look at verse 21, it says, receive the implanted word. So what, what, when it says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be quick to hear, and I want you to be slow to speak, and I want you to be slow to anger. It's talking about your posture before God's word. So let me ask you, how do you approach God's word? That's a good question to ask. Now, here's the answer for most Christians. They don't. It's just they don't. They don't approach God's word. They don't have time for it. But let, let me tell you some common things with Christians. Here's, here's how Christians approach the word of God very busy and very distracted. Is anybody else glad that, I mean, a lot of us, right? We're glad that down there's an audio Bible so we can listen to it while we do everything else. It's just playing in the background so that we're fun, so we can catch up in our Bible in a year because we're 17 days behind, right? It's like, we're, we're just busy, we're distracted. Of course we're busy and distracted. You, I mean, 95% of you do the exact same thing every morning. You wake up, you grab your phone, you check your email, you check your texts, you know, you, you so, social media and you sports and then you, you go, where did the day go? And, and we're busy and we're distracted. That's, what, that's why I heard one guy said, he said, throne before phone. Throne of God, you know. Um, throne <laughs> before phone. Get the right throne. Throne before phone. Uh, or, or if we're not busy and distracted, we, we have it as a to-do list, right? And that's like, you know, if, you're, if you've got that, you're a pretty mature Christian. It's like, you've got the to-do list. You, some of you have done this. You print out the Bible in a year. You, you have it where you can check it off every day, right? And it's part of your, and you know, it kind of takes you 15 or 20 minutes and it's part of your day. It's not a bad thing. We, we want more than this, not less than this, but it's, it's kind of a to-do list. It's kind of something that you check off. Or then if you get in any kind of leadership position, I don't know, you're leading a community group and you're leading a DNA group or you're teaching the kids ministry or I, you know, you're trying to lead your family in devotionals, what ends up happening is you come to the word of God with an agenda. I mean, this is a massive struggle for me. It's like, you know, it's very easy. The more you're in Christian leadership to have a functional relationship with the word of God. I need to go to the word of God so I can get something for somebody else. And it needs to be pithy and it needs to be clear and it needs to be helpful and it needs to be insightful. And so we begin to have this functional relationship with the word of God. Well, instead of that, what if we did what it says here? It says, uh, let's unpack these three things according to the word of God. What does it mean to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Quick to hear, it means I'm eager and attentive and I actively want to hear God's word. Here's, what, here's basically what he's saying. God is speaking, are you listening? Do you remember what did Jesus always say when he taught? When, every time Jesus would go someplace, he'd say, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, was there some rare disease going around in Jerusalem where people didn't have ears? No, obviously, it's ridiculous. He's saying, is anybody listening? Do you remember that story? Some of us don't know the Old Testament as well as others, but there's a story in the Old Testament of Samuel. And Samuel's a little boy, it's a beautiful story. And Samuel's hearing this voice at night. He doesn't know what it is. So he goes, you know, to his mentor, Eli, and says, what should I do? And they go back and forth and back and forth. And he keeps hearing the voice. And Eli eventually says, here's what I want you to do. Next time you hear that voice, I want you to say, speak 
for your servant is listening. Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. That's the heart of listening. When was the last time you really listened? Was it when your doctor called and said, we've got some bad news? I need you to listen very carefully as I tell you what was on the x-ray. I'm going to use some big words, and I need you to listen. Guess what that person is doing? They are listening. They are quick to hear. Or how about when you first start dating somebody and they start texting you and you go, why did they put ha-ha at the end? <laughs> why did they just end with okay? Are they mad at me? Why is she using so many exclamation points? Why is he using so little? It's like, it's like that, that we read the word. So, so first it's I want to be quick to hear. Second, it's I want to be slow to speak. Now we are in a culture where everybody wants to talk all the time, Right? Everybody, I mean, because of social media, everybody has an opinion and thinks we want to hear it. And everybody has a comment and everybody has an insight and nobody wants to learn. No one wants to be quiet. One of the reasons that we don't want to be quiet is whenever we're quiet, it gets really loud inside. Have you ever driven and like, you're like, I'm not going to listen to any radio. I'm not going to listen to any music. I'm just going to, most of us don't do that because then we'd be alone with our thoughts and that would be a scary thing to do. But you may go, well, why would you want to listen to God's word? Why would you want to be quick to hear, slow to speak? Well, let me ask you this. How is your life going? Are you suffering? You may want to go to listen to God's word and be slow to speak. Is your marriage having trouble? Are your kids driving you crazy? Do you have a sin struggle? Are you struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness? These would all be reasons why you'd say, okay, I should be slow to speak. Because what I don't know is probably way more important than the little bit of information that I know. There's a little bit of me and a lot of everything else, and so I better be quiet and I better listen. But then the third is really interesting, anger. Do you see it? Verse 20, anger, right? We are, it's such an angry culture today. Everybody's angry. Do you know what the Greek word for anger is? Twitter. <laughs> Everybody's tweeting at each other, right? The Democrats are angry at the Republicans, and the Republicans are angry at the Democrats, and the vaccinated are angry at the unvaccinated, and the unvaccinated are angry at the vaccinated. And everybody's just so angry. Now, here's what ang here's the problem with anger. When you're angry, you can't listen. When you fight with your spouse and you're angry, you can't hear her or him. You, can, you can't even remember the past, only all of the bad things they've ever done to you. All of a sudden, you can remember all those. Or all of the terrible ways that the future is going to be. That's all you can see. Anger distorts the way that you see everything. Here's what anger is. Anger is love playing defense. So when you're angry, you want to consult your anger. Why am I angry? Most women, they're, they're angry because they're hurt. And I just helped all the men with their marriages. You're welcome. Okay, there it is. M most um, male depression is wrongly diagnosed as anger. A lot of anger is really male depression. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to deal with negative emotions, so everything goes to anger. Anger tells you that you love something. Something that you love is being threatened. It's like a tip of the iceberg, and so then you've got to go look underneath what it is. People are angry at God's word for all types of reasons. John Piper, famous, many of you will know that name, famous pastor. One of the saddest things I've seen recently is, and I'm only talking about this because it's public, his son Abraham, who's like in his 40s now, has a TikTok account or channel, whatever you call them, where all he does is make fun of the Bible. This is John Piper's son. And you just, I can watch it, and I'm just like, he's an angry man. I don't know what happened to him. He's angry that his dad called him Abraham. He's, he's going into the story, I'm like, this guy is hurting. I don't know what happened, but he's just so angry. For a lot of us, we, we, we don't get angry at everything the Bible says, of course. You know, it says something about, you know, you're made in God's image and we all like that. But when it confronts an area of our life that we don't want to change, usually our sexuality, something about our narcissism, something about our money, it's easy to get angry. In fact, you always have two options with the Bible, edit the Bible or change your life. And I mean, it's a lot easier to edit the Bible than change your life. That's, that's why if I could fit us all in some, you know, big bus, and I, we could drive around the city. I could point you to different churches. Yep, they've decided to edit the Bible on this issue. They decided to edit the Bible on this issue. We, we could go to whole denominations. We could go to whole seminaries because changing your life is hard. Parts of you have to die. You've got to confess. You've got to change the way you think. 
And that's all hard, and no one wants to do that. So what we do is instead what, what theologians call hermeneutical gymnastics. We try very, very hard to make the Bible say exactly the opposite of what it's saying. And so what he's saying here first is he's going to say first there's the, there's the posture of your heart. The posture, and this is, this is step one in, in coming to the Word of God. I want to have a posture where I want to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Then look what he says here in verse 21. In verse 21, he says this. Therefore, therefore, put away all filthiness, these are big categories, and rampant wickedness. So you'll see the order. You have to put something away first before you can receive. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's talking about the, one of the things, and this, this could really change your time with the Lord in, his, in the word, is coming to the word with a heart of confession and repentance. So what you'll see here is that's what he's put it away, put away. Admit that there's things in your life that God hates. Confession, here's what confession is. I agree with what God has said about my life. This is why, by the way, um, we don't do this because we're not a super liturgical church, but you'll go to these more formal liturgical churches. We're not against that, but we're just not that way. But anyway, th what they'll do is they will often have, before the preaching of the word, they'll have usually a pastor get up and the pastor will pray Often he'll spend an hour or two preparing this. He will pray a prayer of confession for the church. And why do we do that? It's to soften our hearts before God's word. Why do we sing songs every time before the word is preached here? Sometimes it's one song, sometimes it's two or three. Okay, why do we do that? Well, yeah, there's Bible verses that talk about singing to the Lord, of course. But what it does is it softens our hearts, right? Because you guys come in here, I'm the same way. Well, you come in here and it's like, you fought on the way, and your kids are driving you crazy, and you're wondering if Duke and UNC are going to win. And you know, it's just you've got all these different. You're wondering where you're going to eat lunch at. You've got all. You're overwhelmed. You checked your kids, and it was busy over there. You know, whatever it is, you get completely overwhelmed. And sometimes it takes like the first song, or the second song, or the third song, or halfway through the video about life change, and you realize, oh, this is why I'm here. And I can tell. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I lots of sometimes I get invited places, and it's just like all right, there's a dinner Kyle, on you, then you got to get up and preach. It's like, it's hard. Because everyone's distracted and everybody's not. But when, you, when, we, when we, I can tell a difference when we sing together, it softens all of our hearts and it gets us in a, a, a posture to receive from the word of God. Now, Bill Bright, who you may or may not have heard of, he's one of the most influential men of the 20th century for Christ. Bill Bright, he started Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now crew. Uh, and Bill Bright, he, he was such an amazing man that when he died at his funeral, people said things like this, to know Bill Bright was to know God better. Or, or how would you like someone to say this about you? One, a senator said about Bill Bright, uh, in a crazy world, Bill Bright let me know that God still reigned. So, I mean, really, really powerful. But anyway, what, what Bill would do every night, because I read his autobiography, every morning and every night, Bill would take the Ten Commandments and the fruit of the Spirit, and he would pray through them. And, and then he would do the same thing. He would do it when he woke up and he would do it when he go to bed. He would take the Ten Commandments and say, well, did I break these? Lord, has there been anywhere today that I've coveted? I just want to confess that to you. Or has there been any way he goes through the fruit of the Spirit? Is there anywhere I wasn't kind? I didn't exercise self-control? And it was just, I think that was part of the power of his effectiveness is he was very, very soft before the Lord. And he would use those two resources from Scripture, the Ten Commandments, and he would use the fruit of the Spirit. Now, you see, if you look in verse 21, it says, receive the implanted word, you'll see. So the language here is that of gardening, which James is picking up this teaching from his brother, right? The brother would always, Jesus would always talk about the four soils. It, it, you could think, another image or illustration would be pulling weeds, right? Now, when I was young, when I was in high school, my dad, he owns his own business, has his office, and, and he would always, you know, every summer he would pay me to come and pull all the weeds at his office, which would take at least a whole day. And I would use Roundup and everything, and I, I hated that job. What I hated the most is they came back every year. <laughs> and I say that to say, they just, you just, and there's different weeds in different seasons of your life. There's different temptations. There's different trials that you're going to have. And so, and so it's, the, it's a commitment to pull those things. And then look what it says here. It says, receive the word with meekness. Now, meek, is, meek means a couple different things. It's a hard word to define. It's strength under control would be one way to think of it. Uh, you'll, you'll see it mostly used with horses, like that's a meek horse. What is a meek horse? A meek horse is a horse that's easy to move. In fact, the, the meek, from what I could find this week, meek horse, the, the first that that shows up is that they used to call the horses meek back in battle when they would train the horses to continue to move forward in battle even when they heard cannons. That's a meek horse. I'm going to continue to follow my master. I'm going to continue to move forward 
and I'm going to continue to trust him even when things are hard and I'm scared and I want to run in the other direction. What a beautiful image. So he's saying, first, here's the big, so we're just, that's part one, is we need to have a posture before God's word, a posture of receiving, welcoming, embracing the word. So you move from posture now to practice. I want you to see this. This is in verse 22. We get to the practice of the word. So why, the question is, why aren't we being changed? One is we're not approaching the word rightly. And two, then we're just not applying it to our lives, actually. Here's what it says. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. The temptation of a church, I'm talking a good like our church, a good gospel-loving church like ours who loves Jesus, who loves missions, who loves the Bible, is the temptation of a church like ours is to be a sermon appreciation society. And, and I'm so grateful that you guys love good preaching. And, and, and in fact, some of you will tell me other preachers are listening to, oh man, did you hear John Mark Comer on the spiritual disciplines? Did you hear Piper on missions? Did you hear Matt Chandler on marriage? Did you hear David Platt on, you know, in, in, and I love all that. But what, what happens is, you know, because people, and whether it's me or the other people up here, it's, it's very kind. People will often come up and say, hey, great sermon. And I've started to ask this question just to deflect it off me, but also to focus on them. Uh, the other week, a guy came up to me and said, man, really enjoyed your sermon. And I said, what did you find most helpful? He said, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Which I put him on the spot, you know. But it's just, but well, it's very, very easy let me say it this way. A couple things that you need to know, because part of what we're going to get to in a few minutes is that we deceive ourselves. And it's really hard to talk about how do we deceive ourselves and how do we get out of deceiving ourselves. And so that's what I'm going to try to do for the rest of our time here. Um, but one of the ways that we do that is what we think, we, we think attendance is transformation. And attendance is not the same thing as transformation. So, you know, people can, people, Christians get really good at showing up and not being changed. Showing up and taking notes. Showing up and nodding your head. Showing up and making listening noises. I mean, it's very easy to show up, show up at community groups, show up, show up at this event, show up on Sunday or Saturday night and not be changed. Now, the reason that church is, you know, the reason that it's easy to talk, like I told you at the beginning, we, our attendance has doubled this year. Well, the, the reason that it's easy for churches to track attendance is because we can actually measure it. It's hard to measure what God's doing in your heart. It's hard to measure true transformation in your life and in your sin life and in your marriage and with your relationships and in your relationship with God. It's all, now we, we do know this, attendance isn't nothing, right? Because one of the first signs that someone's not healthy is they stop showing up. I mean, I'm not saying you're sick, I'm not saying vacation, but I'm saying the person who doesn't show up to group for like four weeks in a row and was in town is probably not doing well. Because one of the, the first signs is I don't know if I wanna be around other Christians because there's something in my life or there's something that I'm doing and I don't wanna be asked about it. So. But attendance is not the same as transformation. Secondly, insight is not the same as application. Now, basically, my, I mean, I've got multiple jobs, okay? But, but like one of my roles up here is to take what is familiar and make it fresh. So you're like, I've read James before. Well, what I'm trying to do is take something familiar and make it fresh. That's an insight, okay? That's, like, that's literally what I do all week. How do I try to see something in here and then explain it in a clear, real, helpful way? But we have to understand that insight is not the same as application. You could have this great insight. You're studying the Gospel of Mark. I didn't know that the whole Gospel of Mark was about Jesus as the servant king. Great, but are you more servant-hearted? Do you worship him more as king because of that? It's like, we can have, in the more podcasts we listen to, and the more Bible studies we do, and the more blogs we read, right? We all of a sudden, you have the coolest insight into some passage, and you think, or I think, because I've seen something neat, I've actually applied it. The third is, so attendance isn't the same as transformation, insight isn't the same as application, and agreement is not the same as action. Like, we love to, I mean, Christians, like, orthodoxy is basically, I agree with this. You know, you, you may not know this, but if, if, you, you know, if you're gonna be a part of our church, a member of our church, you have to, you have to um, read our long confession of faith, sign it, and say you believe it. It's, it's, a, it's a long document. We say a lot of things in there, okay? Well, it's easy for, for Christians to agree with things but not be changed by them. People agree with the Christian sexual ethic and then their personal, private, sexualized or deviant. People agree. You heard Donovan read the verse. Oh yeah, cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, the Lord owns it all. You don't live like that. You live like you own everything. You overspend, you're not generous. It's like, okay, so then you have to admit, what do I really believe? Because agreeing isn't the same as believing. 
Believe, the only way you know how, what you believe is you have to watch your, it's really hard to do. You have to watch yourself like a stranger would watch you and take notes. What do I believe about my marriage? Well, I have to watch how I interact with my wife or my husband. I have to, like a stranger, like I don't know myself. And then if I watch it, my, my behavior will tell me what I believe. That's one of James's big ideas. So he says all this, and he says, okay, instead, if you look at the illustration he gives us, he says, guys, here's what the word is. The word is a mirror. Now, what's the purpose of a mirror? I mean, it's so obvious. It's just to see yourself. The purpose of a mirror, according to the Bible, is to see your reflection so it will cause repentance. That's, that's the whole point of a mirror, right? We have mirrors everywhere, right? I don't know if women still carry mirrors in their pocket now that we have the iPhone camera that can flip the other way, okay, on front. But women used to carry mirrors in their pockets, we have mirrors in our bathrooms. We have mirrors in our bedrooms. We have mirrors in our cars. We have mirrors everywhere. There was a study done in Britain on how much people look in the mirror. And we know the British don't brush their teeth, right? So it's even, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's probably even more in America. But they did this British study of, of how often do British people look in the mirror. They found out that the average British guy or average British lady looks in the mirror 38 times a day. And the average British guy looks in the mirror 18 times a day. And we wish the average guy would look in the mirror a little bit more, right? Yeah. Um, but what happens is, think about it, and what happens is when you look in the mirror, you see yourself, right? Especially if it's a good mirror and it's a well-lit room, you see yourself for who you really are. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous if, if you look in the mirror and you're like, this mirror makes me look fat. Is it the mirror? This mirror makes me look like I have one eyebrow. You do have one eyebrow. <laughs> Could you take care of that? Um, you know, it's like, it would be silly to look in the mirror and then yell at the mirror and complain at the mirror for showing me what's really there. In fact, when this is what people do all the time, people don't like, by the way, your spouse, when you get married, your spouse becomes a mirror, and that's what's so frustrating. Your marriage is a whole mirror, and so your, she does or he does, you know, sees all the things in you that you don't see about yourself or you haven't seen because you can't see yourself by yourself, and so that's all hard. But a lot of times, people don't like the mirror of God's word, so they go to another mirror. This is, people choose their friend groups as a mirror. It's like a deep subconscious thing. It's like, well, who could I hang out that would affirm my lifestyle? I'm dating a non-Christian. Well, I'll hang out with these people because they'll affirm that. I'm worldly and I'm spending way too much money and I'm consumeristic. Well, I just need to find some people who will affirm that. That's the whole tolerance movement. The whole tolerance movement, I've taught about this at length other places, but the whole tolerance movement is, will somebody affirm, approve, and celebrate me? Please. Is there a podcast I can listen to? Is there a book that I can read? Is there a YouTube channel that I can follow? We're, what we want somehow is we want everybody to tell us that we're okay, but the problem is we know we're not okay. So it only works for like a little bit. The Bible tells is honest, but then gives us hope. Now, if you look at verse 24, it tells us why the mirror doesn't work with us. So that's a fair question. Well, why isn't it working? Well, one is your posture before the word may not be one that's quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to listen, or slow to anger. But he says, if you look at this, it, says, he says he looks intently. So it even appears that potentially you're in the Bible and you're reading it. It says he looks intently, and then verse 24 says, and he forgets what he looks like. He forgets. Well, forgetting is what theologians call a noetic effect of the fall. Noetic effects of the fall are the effects of the fall on the mind. Okay, so it's just one of the effects of living in a sinful world is we forget things. And, and who knows why we forget things? One reason you forget things is you got a lot going on. Another reason you forget things is it wasn't urgent or important to you, and so you didn't need to remember it, right? It's like, well, there's a lot going on, so I'm only going to remember what's really important because i got a lot going on. Well, let me, let me try to help us. I, I think what's, what's happened, from best I can tell, we have overemphasized personal Bible reading and personal study, and we have underemphasized meditation on God's word. The reason we forget is because we don't know how to meditate, and it's not a priority in our lives, and we're not doing it. So I am so grateful. I mean, I've got so many Bibles, okay? I'm grateful. To, I've got different translations. I'm sure as many of you do. But do you, do you know that the idea of having, think about, with this, think about this with me for a second. So the Gutenberg printing press comes out in the 1500s. Okay, well, that's going to print a big Bible that none of us would be able to afford. Okay, but and not even in our language. So, so how long was it until a, a middle-class Christian could have a Bible in their language that they could afford and they were literate so they could read it? From the best we can tell, about 300 years. So what did people do for the first 1,700 years? Most of them much more devout Christians than us. They had no, there was no, I want us to think about this for a second. There was no personal Bible reading of any kind for the first 1,700 years of the church. Well, you go, what did people do? They showed up on the weekend and they thought about it all week. Actually, during the Catholic church and the medieval ages and stuff, they had church every day. 
It's like, we'll get here real early. We'll teach some Bible. The, the priest has the Bible. He teaches it, and then people try to hold on to what that is for a little bit. And so the principle is this. The best application is a good meditation. And the hard thing with meditation is we, we, we over-mystify because, I don't know, somebody did yoga and they thought of meditation was emptying your mind, and that's not what meditation is. That's Eastern meditation, emptying your mind. But Christian meditation is filling your mind with God's word and thinking about it. And some people go, well, I can't meditate. Have you ever been anxious? So if you've ever been anxious or you've ever worried about something, that was a form of meditation. Have you ever had some lustful thoughts that you kept thinking about or fantasy that you kept returning to? That's what we call meditation. Have you ever been bitter, resentful, and unforgiving towards someone and you played over the conversation and the person and what they're doing? You know how to meditate. So the best application, if you really want, so that you don't forget, is you have to med meditation. So again, we need more than personal Bible reading, not less. And personal Bible reading is great. What you want to do with personal Bible reading is think, well, what is something in here that I can, what's a nugget I can take? Or how can I, how can I take this with me? And then, because you don't know, I don't know, you don't know what your day is going to be like. You think you know what your day is going to be like. But if you, it may, I don't know, you, you, you meditate on the idea of being self-controlled, fruit of the Spirit. And you didn't even know that something was going to happen at 2 o'clock that afternoon at your work. And the, as you're thinking about self-control, it's influencing how you're living. And then you're experiencing the blessing of God. See, the adventure of your life is to meditate on God's Word See how, where you can live it out and watch God bless it. That's the adventure of the Christian life. How can I hold on to God's word throughout the day and all of my interactions begin to apply it and just see God bless it? But there's a second reason we don't do it. Look, look at verse 22. This is even more sophisticated. Um, he says this. Be doers, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So you can't see yourself by yourself. By the way, this is why we do sermon-guided communion groups. Every once in a while, people say, why do we, you know, because there's people at churches today, there's life groups and there's small groups and there's community groups and there's missional community groups. And anyway, they all do different things. Why did we decide to be sermon-guided? It's to help us not be deceived and to help us be doers of the word. Like, it's not because I or any of the pastors think our sermon is so great. In fact, doing sermon-guided discussions has been a little awkward for me because I, I led our community group for the first year, and I was like, uh, what did you think when I said? <laughs> Which was a little awkward for all of us. Um, but, but the community group is not supposed to be sports center highlights of, of the sermon. It's supposed to be where we help each other live it out and apply it. You know, I was talking to someone this week, and they said they were from an, a church where we're not against Sunday school and all that. They said, we were in a church that was very event-based. They said this to me. They said, very event-based, very much about kind of, you know, Sunday school culture. And it was great because I kind of just saw people briefly and we all had our Sunday best on and we saw each other and then we went our ways. She said, this whole like DNA group thing and this whole community group thing, it's hard because people see who I really am and I see who they really are. And it's hard over time. It's like, yeah, but that's where the real life change happens. She says, we're in each other's homes. Yeah, that's where the real life change happens. And so it's, it's, I need people who know and love God, know and love the Bible, who are going to help me live it out. Now, if you look at verse 22, it says that we are self-deceived, which is so hard to talk about, because how do you deceive yourself? I mean, here's the question. How do you lie to yourself about yourself? And no one lies to you more than you lie to you, right? You'll tell yourself you're okay when you're not okay. You tell yourself you're not addicted when, if you looked at someone else, you'd say they were addicted. You tell yourself you don't have a problem when you have a problem. You tell yourself your teenage daughter's doing fine when she definitely is not doing fine, but you don't want to talk about it. You tell yourself your marriage is okay when it's not okay. We do this all the time, and part of it's that we're made in God's image, and so we're, we're moral, so we have to even tell ourselves we're okay. Like, we, we rationalize, we justify. Got, heard a guy, he said, he was talking about, he said he bought a really big home. We're not against buying a big home, but he, he bought a big home. I heard this guy tell a story. Christian guy. And he said, he said, I told everyone I bought a big home to entertain. Because he's like, that's what you tell people if you buy. Oh, but we're entertaining. We have lots of people in our house. He, says, so I, he, he said, so I, and then I started telling people, well, you know, the grandkids. The grandkids are going to be coming back. And so that's why, and I want a house that, you know, people want to come back to. So that's why I bought the big house. He said, it took him about a year or two one night. He just was being honest. He said, I bought it. He said, he, said he had to tell himself and tell the Lord. He goes, I bought a big house because I wanted to have a big house. And he said, that was the beginning of, he could actually have an honest relationship about how to use it why he did it, what God's doing in his heart. Is he materialistic? What should he do about it? But he said he had to take a moment. And he, it took him a year to admit why he bought a house. 
Just lying to himself. How many guys are a little, how many married men are a little too nice to the cute new coworker? And probably, oh, I'm just helping her. Well, you didn't help Bob. <laughs> Bob doesn't know what he's doing over here. You know, but we, we, we you know, oh, well, she needs extra help. She needs, it's like, really? It's like, it's the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. A lot of it's self-inflation. So they did this nationwide study of high school seniors. They did a million high school senior study. I was reading about this. And they asked um, if you thought you were above average. 70% of high school seniors said they thought they were above average. Now, none of us in here, I think, are mathematicians, but that's not possible. And then they asked, how many of you think that you are below average? Just means you're under 50. You know, how many of you think you're below average? Out of a million high schoolers, only 2% of them thought they were below average. We have this inflated view of ourselves. Now, you may say, why do we lie to ourselves? There's lots of answers to that. You know, we lie to ourselves for the same reasons that we, we lie to other people, like, Two of those reasons are we want to look better than we are, or we don't want to look as bad as we are. They sound like the same thing, but if you think about them, they're a little different. We'll tell somebody something to make us sound better, or we'll cover up something to make ourselves not sound as bad. Those are, okay? But here's what's really interesting. When they, when they did research, like, why do people lie to themselves? Because it's such a big issue, self-deception. They realize that the reason people lie to themselves is they don't like the negative feelings associated with reality something to think about for a long time. The reason that you won't admit how much porn you're looking at is how it makes you feel. The reason you won't admit how much you drink is the reason it makes you feel. The reason you can't talk about the condition of your kids in your home is how it makes you feel. The reason you can't talk about your workaholism is the way that it makes you feel. And so the, the Bible's answer is just to see ourselves rightly. That's what humility is. Humility is, here's the principle. The quicker you get to reality, the quicker you can deal with reality. So what I'm always trying to help us all do to, uh, to, is get to reality. You don't want to get to reality real late. That, trust me. I mean, that's, that's the midlife crisis stuff that happens. That's the we need professional counseling for like a decade kind of stuff because we just, we just, like I heard a professional counselor one time say that, um, Almost every marriage issue he had ever seen that was so convoluted and so complex could have been handled by a few friends in a community group if they would have just talked about it as soon as it happened, the first time, before there was like 10 years of bad communication and five years of deceiving, you know, and three years of not knowing how to talk about it. It's like, well, by the time you get into all that, what are we doing? So we need to get to reality so that we can deal with reality, which he leads us with a, a final verse. If you look at verse 25, he talks about the absolute beauty of the word of God. So he's saying, look into this mirror because this mirror, he's gonna go back to the image of, of the Bible, but now he's gonna call it, look what he says here. But the one who looks into the perfect law, so you can trust the Bible, the law of liberty, the law is that which brings freedom and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, again, the warning of being forget, forgetting, but a doer who acts, look at this, do, we, do you believe this? He's saying, if you obey the Bible and do what it says, you will be blessed in doing it. Remember, Jesus said that in John 13, 7. He says, now that you know these things, blessed will you be if you do them. He's saying under all of this, like, so you go to the word, he said there's, and you see yourself. Maybe you, you go to the word and you don't forget. So let's think of it positively. You go to the word and you don't forget. Okay, good. So I've got the meditation. Okay. Or when you go to the word and you see yourself, you're not deceived anymore. You've, you've have other people, you actually see you, you've got some areas to repent in. Now he's saying, why don't you do anything about it? The answer is you don't believe it's best for you. You don't believe it's going to bring freedom. So he ends with this picture of the word of God. Right, I mean, how do you view the Bible? Our culture today views the Bible as archaic and oppressive and outdated, a religious text. The average Christian today views the Bible, I'm pretty, concer uh, pretty sure the average Christian views the Bible as a textbook to be studied, to be mastered, to mark up instead of to be marked by, to study instead of to be studied by, to get through instead of have it get through to them. And so what he's saying is the, the Bible is perfect, so it's totally truthful. And here's why you're, that, that's an important thing for him to write down here is because the areas you need to change most are probably the areas the culture is telling you you're okay in. 
So that's convicting. So then you have to go, okay, what, am I going to believe the culture or the canon of Scripture? What am I going to believe here? And what, what the Bible does is because the Bible transcends every culture, every culture, it will affirm certain things and it will, um, it will confront certain things. So let's take Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, you know, that famous marriage passage. When it says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church, and he laid himself down and nourished and cherished and washed in, the water of the, uh, washed in the water of the word, guess what? When that was written, guess who that was unbelievably offensive to? All men. Just that was the culture. If men had enough money, they lived upstairs, everyone else lived downstairs. So now is that offensive to anyone today? No, normally you show it to most people and people are like, yeah, and men need to do about 10 more things too. That's kind of our culture today. Guess what was not offensive when it was written? Wives, submit to your husbands. Every time I teach on anything about women or wives submitting to husbands, I have to ask them to cut a song and we have to add about a 15 to 20 minute part in my sermon where I explain what submission is and what it isn't. Because we live in a completely different culture where today that's the offensive thing. See, what, the question is, that you're gonna have to ask is, do you believe that God is holding out on you? Or do you believe that God and his word has the best for you? The, the culture today believes in what's, what they call negative freedom. Negative freedom is I can only have freedom if I have no restrictions. So the culture would say freedom is I can do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want, for as long as I want. And all those people are self-medicating. And all those people are miserable, especially after they get out of college. Because the way that they dated and did whatever they wanted was, was really good practice for divorce. And you don't get to drink that much and then just stop drinking that much and have a good relationship with alcohol afterwards. And so there's, there's these people. So what the Bible teaches is freedom with offense and blessing within boundaries. That's what the Bible teaches. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But then what does, God, what does Satan do? The serpent does the same two things he does all the time. He questions God's word. Did God really say? And he makes us think that somehow God's holding out on us. And, and the mature question that James wants us to leave with is, is not the question, God, can you bless my life? God, bless me. Bless my marriage. Bless my future. Bless my finances. Bless my career. He wants us to ask this question, God, how can I make my life blessable? What is the kind of life that you bless? And God tells us that. And by the way, the blessing of God is the favor and fellowship of God on your life. It doesn't mean more money and more stuff and more health. But the blessing of God comes when you put God first in it. So as we close, just the most practical I can get, how do you start doing the word of God, not just hearing it? Here's step one. Stop doing sinful, stupid things you know you shouldn't be doing. And there's probably for each of us like two or three of those. It's like, well, you know, it is sinful and it's stupid, and I know it, and I know it, and I still do it. Well, stop doing that. <laughs> And that's why, they, that's why we think the Ten Commandments are written in all negatives except for the Fourth Commandment. People debate, why are they all negative? It's like, well, because you can't know what to do until you know what not to do. You know, so you teach a very young kid, don't touch the outlet. Later, they can understand what the outlet's for. They can, under, they can plug things in. They can understand electricity. Not now. No is what you tell a kid. Don't touch that. Don't stick anything in there. Later, you tell them, well, you can stick this cord in there. But that takes time. You have to tell them no before you can tell them yes. Same with us. The second thing is, what do you know that you need to be doing that you're not doing? You know it. It's like, well, that, you know, your whole life, here's the, here's the horrible thing to think about. You already have enough tr truth to transform your whole life. I mean, how many more Bible studies do you need? How many more podcasts are you going to listen to? How many more books are you going to buy? You already have enough truth to transform your whole life. It's just delayed disobedience and procrastination and hesitation, and you're in the same place you've always been. This is why someone taught us a long time ago to teach our kids obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. That's what God's saying to us. But this is not something, guys, that we have to do alone. This is what Jesus Christ has come to help us to do. Right? When, when I left the summit, they always said there at the summit, they said, never preach a do-do sermon. And a do-do sermon was when you just tell people a bunch of things they need to do. That's a do-do sermon. And it stinks. Okay? <laughs> um, you, you want to preach always a what Christ has done, therefore what you need to do. And listen, Jesus Christ, his name in John chapter 1 and in, I believe it's Revelation 19 or Revelation 13, one of those, his name is the word of God. Both when he came the first time, he's called the word of God. When he comes back the second time, he's called the word of God. The word of God becomes flesh. What is that? The word of God became doable. 
applicable. We look at the life of Jesus and what does Jesus do? What he does is he comes and he speaks the word of God. He meditates on the word of God. Do you know that when he's in the uh, desert and he's fighting temptation, okay, he didn't have a copy of the Bible with him. All three of the temptations he fights with the book of Deuteronomy. We don't know this for sure. Most people think that what he was doing in the 40 days in the wilderness was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy as he got ready for, to, to lead the people out in his own exodus. So there he is thinking on it, meditating on it so that he can have it. Jesus lives the perfect life. He is the word of God become flesh, completely obeying, not just hearing. And then he goes to the cross and the cross is the event and the image and the symbol that if you look at it honestly, you can no longer be self-deceived. If you look at the cross, you've gotta go, okay, I can't look at the cross and God killing his own son in my place and go, I'm a mistaker, oops. I do accidents, I have indiscretions, oops. You look at the cross, you go, I am a sinner. And I don't need a life coach, that's real cool. I, I, I don't need a mentor, I need a savior. And so what I want us to do is I just wanna, I'm gonna give us time to pray for a moment and just a, a moment to just confess to the Lord where you're prone to forget and where you're prone to deceive and just to ask for some help, let's do that. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you that you are the word of God made flesh. So when we're like, what does it look like for God to live? We know it. What does it look like for humanity to follow the word of God? We see it in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask you would help us not to forget. Lord, will you bring it to our individual attention right now where we tend to forget you? Is it we forget you in our home? Do we forget you at work? Do we forget you on the weekends? Where are we forgetting the word, Lord? And Lord, as painful as it is, and it is painful, Lord, help us to see ourselves as we really are. Lord, use our spouses, use our community groups, use the mirror of your word, Lord, and as we see our reflection, may it cause deep repentance. We pray this in your name.